in times of crisis in our nation's history, times of revolution and war and dire crisis, the pulpits in another time thundered. They thundered with righteousness. Today they squeak with intolerance. We're in a time of crisis, my friends. I don't know if you understand that. We're in a time of crisis. And one way that I believe I can fight back is I can thunder from this pulpit. And you may, may or not like it. A comment was made recently about, is Jesse going to talk about politics? And I don't think that person meant it in a negative way in any means. But politics is a great evil in our society today. And we should be speaking out against it. We should thunder against it. And I publish these messages online. I'm not ashamed of anything I say. I'm not afraid of anybody showing up at my property like they did to the pastor over in Maiden a few years ago when he said something biblical. And when he spoke against homosexuality, we have to not be afraid of these things in this day and time. And I believe these pulpits need to thunder. And we need to stop putting our trust in politicians because they lie to us. Our president has lied to us, my friends. He has betrayed us. You can, you can spin it any way you want to spin it. You can spin it. You can listen to Rush Limbaugh spin it. You can listen to Hannity spin it. You can listen to all of the ridiculous tweets that came out. We're going to build the wall. No, they're not. He lied to us. He backed down and he caved. And I think it's shameful. And I think that we as Christians ought to take a stand. And we ought to tell these politicians that until we get a wall, until our government stops giving money to Planned Parenthood, And until IDs are required to vote in this country, we're not voting anymore. We're not participating in this corruption. I'd rather hand the country over to the socialists and know the enemy we're up against than to keep voting for these frauds and these liars who all they care about is getting reelected. All they care about is getting reelected, not what's right for the country. And I'm sick and tired of it. Are you aware that in 2018, the fiscal year, that there were 332,757 abortions performed by Planned Parenthood alone in this country? That equates to over 900 a day. That's just Planned Parenthood. That's not other facilities. That was up 11,373 from the previous Fiscal year. And that is on Donald Trump's watch. In this last year, it was the first time in many years that private donors contributed the most money to Planned Parenthood. That shows you how sick our society is. The politicians are sick because the society is sick. However, this last fiscal year... The government funding was $563 million to Planned Parenthood. That's up $20 million from the previous year. And again, that's that's on the Donald's watch. Is that what we voted to elect? An increase in the funding of Planned Parenthood? Caving 
when it comes to basic security and safety for our citizens? Do we honestly think that America will be great again when it butchers its unborn like this? Do we honestly think that? In Texas, it's been discovered there are over 95,000 non-citizens who are registered to vote. And 58,000 non-citizens voted in this last election. And we actually think that our votes matter? They're just canceled out by people that aren't even citizens of this country. They don't pay taxes. Yes, the men, the farmers, the migrants, they may come here and they may work hard, but mommy and the kids sit at home and collect free welfare checks. And then you've got government workers. I mean, it must be nice to get paid for not working. I wish we could benefit from that in the private sector. That's the sick society we live in. And we need to, we need to just draw the line. That's my opinion. We're going to preach no more voting until you give us security, until you stop slaughtering the unborn, and until you require a base, ba- basic things that third world countries require. In Peru, I find it very interesting. It's a third world country. A lot of political corruption. And they put the signs up all over town. You know, we, every time we turn the corner, there was a big sign, Jesus Maldonado for Alcalde in San Juan de Lurigancho for mayor. Jesus didn't win, but his signs are still up months later. But there are like 18 or 19 candidates. But you're required by law to vote in Peru. If you don't, you're fined. And you have to show, I think, at least one, perhaps two forms of ID to vote. And your ID is stamped proving that you voted. Non-citizens are not allowed to vote. And if you're a citizen, you're required by law to vote. Even a third world country can figure this stuff out. Even people from the mountains who haven't tasted technology like we have can figure this stuff out. But we're a sick society. We're a sick society that can't even figure this stuff out because we're under the judgment of Almighty God. And when you mess with His Word, He messes with your mind. I am just discouraged and I'm ashamed of our president this morning. Don't give me this garbage about 21 days and off to the races and all this. It's not going to happen. You're not going to get a wall. You're not. And I say, no more voting until we get one. That's my opinion. And I don't mind standing behind this pulpit. I don't care what the IRS has to say about what a preacher should and shouldn't say in tax-exempt status. I really don't care what they have to say. In times of crisis in our nation's history, our God-fearing preachers thundered against corruption and sin. Our society is a sin Sick society that deserves the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. And no Republican. I hold every Republican responsible for what happened. Including the congressman here in our area. A supposed conservative, Patrick McHenry. I hold him responsible. I hold Tom Tillis and Richard Burr responsible in this state. For what happened in this compromise. And I plan to let them know. And I plan to let them know that I will tell every Christian and every person that cares about what I have to say, there may be only a few, but I'll tell every one of them not to waste their time voting anymore. I plan to let them know tomorrow. I think you should too. It's time to speak up. What a shame. I had a letter that the president had sent me in response to something I had 
received or had written about a long time ago. And I thought, that's kind of nice. I want to keep it. I just pulled it out and threw it in the garbage can last night. I just don't care. But you know what? It's a pleasant thing as Christians to know that when our president, who says a lot of things, who tweets a lot of things, who can tell us a lot of things, when our president won't fight for us, there's a God in heaven who does. As he told Israel at the, at the, at the edge of the Red Sea, stand still and see the salvation of God. The Lord will fight for you. And it's always better, as I tell those in martial arts and in opportunities I have to do demonstrations and share the gospel, it's always better to let God fight for you than to fight for yourselves. And so as dark as all this is, and as angry and vexed as you get in your spirit, when you think about all those little babies, understand that God hears the cry of that blood from the ground, and He will repay. And God, when the the wicked level lies and deceit against the just, the Bible says God laughs at the wicked because he knows his day is coming. We are a hated minority in this country. Hated by those who claim the name of Christ and hated by those who hate the name of Christ. Let us stand. Let us stand. We're going to take a moment and we're going to go far above all this. We're going to jump far above this. We're going to go out, out the north, far up in the sky, past the heaven of heavens. And we're going to talk about the one who really can be trusted. And that's Almighty God today. Last week we were in Revelation chapter 19 verse 10. We talked about John's interaction there with the angel. The very powerful statement there. That uh, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That means two things. True biblical prophecy points to Messiah. The witness of the Holy Spirit is to the Messiah. And then secondly, those that have the testimony of Jesus, we have something that the world, that Donald Trump, that the Republicans don't have. We know the future. We know exactly where we're going when we die. Those of us that have been born again. We can try to avoid the topic, but we know exactly where our lost family members are headed, and we know where some of them are. And we know what's going to happen to this planet in the next 50 to 100 years, if it survives that long. And we know the future of America. It's not MAGA. It's just not. Not when there's this many butchered babies on the records, on on our president's watch. You can, you, you can blame it all you want on somebody else, but as I think it what was, it was it Truman that said the buck stops here at the top? I mean, we'd at least like to think that the funding would go down. It went up. But we know the future. And the future is dark, but dark for a time. And that darkness is shattered. That darkness is shattered when the heavens open. When the heavens open one day. And the rider, the white horse rider, not the fake imposter with a bow and no arrows back in Revelation 6. But when the rider on the white horse with the sword proceeding from his mouth comes down. The heavens open. 
We know that future. That's the spirit of prophecy. That's the testimony of Jesus. And we should stand in that. We should preach that. We should rest in that. When Paul spoke of future events in the New Testament, he spoke of them in the past tense. It was a literary, uh, 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 a literary tense whereby in Greek the past tense would be used to speak of the future because what he spoke about was as good as done. When it says there in the Bible that whom God hath uh, 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 predestined, he sanctified, and whom he sanctified, he has glorified. Glorification for our bodies at the rapture is future, but Paul spoke of it in the past because it's as good as done. These things we read about right now, regardless of some stupid agreement in Washington, they're as good as done. With or without a wall, they're as good as done. With or without a vote that actually matters, they're as good as done. You just watch. 21 days from now, we'll get our virtual wall and some drones. That's what we'll get. It's another big fat lie. But these things are not a lie. These are the true sayings of God. And then we got into the first phrase of chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. I saw heaven opened. Isaiah the prophet said, Oh, in a day of deep darkness and sin and corruption in the land of Israel, just like today, Oh, that thou wouldest, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. That should be our desire. It was the desire there of John in the book of Revelation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Look, we, we, that should be our desire. Lord, rend the heavens. And one day he will. We talked about the heavens opening. What did that mean? I kind of jumped off topic a little bit because the Bible says that God created the earth and he gave it to men. But the heavens are his. You don't mess with those. And it says in Nehemiah and in Deuteronomy that God created the heavens and the heaven of the heavens. Paul referred to the third heaven. There's three heavens. There's the sky that we see when we look up. It's blue in the daytime. It's dark sometimes at night. Then there's, there's the heavens, which are outer space, the solar system, the planets, the galaxies, the quasars, something that uh, evolutionary theory, stellar evolutionary theory can't, can't explain. There's the heavens, the universe. But then there is the heaven of the heavens. The heaven of the heavens is the abode of God. It's the third heaven that Paul was caught up to. He, he didn't know if it was a dream or an out-of-body experience, but he spoke of that being caught up there and being shown things that were too wonderful to utter. I think Paul was shown some of the things that Paul was, I mean, that John was later allowed to write down at the end of the first century in Revelation. But the third heaven, the abode of God, the center of God's operation in the universe where all of His fullness and His glory is incarnated, the three, uh, the, the three persons of the Trinity, the abode of God. And when the Bible says here in Revelation 19, verse 11, that heaven opened, this is the heaven that opens. This is the heaven that opens. The skies here open all the time when the clouds roll back. But this is the opening of the abode of God. And then we looked in the book of Job, and found some interesting things there written about 
something up there. Now, science claims to have all these answers about outer space and astronomy. Frankly, many of them, I don't know how they could possibly know these things. There are mathematical equations. There are um, concepts. There are these other things that they use to figure out distances and all of that. But at the end of the day, it's all subjective. It can't be proven. It can't be known. Certain things can be observed out there, but they can't be proven. If you've ever seen a picture, kids, if you ever see a picture that shows the Milky Way galaxy, and then it's got an arrow pointing to a place that says this is the location of our sun and our solar system, then please understand that is an artist representation. That is not a photograph. That is an impossible image that's never been snapped. The farthest any spacecraft or satellite has ever been just left the solar system not long ago. So that is, not, that is an artist's guess. When they say that the Milky Way galaxy is located in a specific place in the universe, speculation. Speculation. But they speak of it as if it's absolute fact. That's what science has done all through the years. <clears throat> science is not God. Science is a pursuit. It's a pursuit. It's a pursuit that can never be fully and totally attained. It's a pursuit. Some pursue it honorably. Some have an agenda. When NASA suddenly needs funding, it seems like they all, all of a sudden discover something. There's an agenda. Science is a pursuit where knowledge is built upon knowledge. But there's a whole lot of presuppositions. And the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Much of science is absent of that. The Bible shows itself to be a scientific book in many, many places. In fact, one of the passages we read in the book of Job says that God stretched out the north over the empty place and hung the earth upon nothing. That's a scientific statement that took man a whole lot of time to figure out. In the book of Amos, we're told that the Pleiades has seven major stars. Took man a whole lot of time to figure that out because you can only see six with the naked eye. We're told in the Bible that it can be day and night at the same time on the earth. Took men a while to figure that out. God told Israel to use running water to wash themselves. It took men in this country after the Civil War to figure out that that staunches the spread of disease as opposed to washing in bowls of water like they did in the, the, hosp the, the field hospitals in the Civil War. So many died from disease. The Bible's a scientific book. It's shown itself to be trustworthy. The archaeological discoveries, scientific discoveries have shown the old claims of the Bible to be true. So I think we can look at the Bible and take it seriously when it tells us stuff about the universe. We can't possibly look to astronomy and astrophysics and all these things and think that they're absolute. No science is absolute. If you go to the famous museum in France, the Louvre, there's over five miles of bookshelves crammed in there containing scientific knowledge that is now obsolete. What was once considered science but has now been shown to be obsolete. Science becomes obsolete. The Bible does not. And so we looked at some things that were said concerning the heavens. I don't want to go back and, and, and review all of that. But you know in Genesis... We're told that the Spirit of God was floating or was, was moving upon the face of the waters. 
the face of the deep. And then we're told that on the second day, God created a firmament. And the firmament was called heaven. And that firmament divided waters above it and waters below it. The waters below it were called seas. But the firmament divided waters, the face of the deep. And it was in the midst of the waters. And then we go to Job and we see that there are waters that are far up in the north, up, up, up. And their purpose is to hide the face of God's throne. And they serve as a boundary for day and night, a boundary for time. This is as Job. It's amazing the thing that Job and his the things that Job and his friends knew. This is the oldest book in the Bible. It's not. It doesn't deal with the oldest uh, history in the Bible. Moses wrote the history of the world about eighteen uh, or about nineteen hundred BC. But Job was written before that. There's no mention of Abraham. There's no mention of the law. These were men, probably between the flood and Abraham. <laughs> that knew a lot and could reason in a way that we're not able to do because we're so drug-induced nowadays. We're not drug-induced with pills. We're drug-induced with our iPhones. But they could reason things from general revelation. It's amazing. Now, they didn't get everything right. God had to intervene and give them special revelation. But they knew a lot. And they could reason about the heavens and creation and see the signature of God in ways that we're too blind to see. And Job uh, was speaking and answering his friends in, in chapter 26. And he tells us that there are waters up in the north, up, 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 that hide the face of God's throne. They're a boundary. And that death is only formed from under those waters. So dead things are under that water boundary. Above it, there is no death. Then we went to Job 32 through 37 and talked about Elihu, the young man who eavesdropped on these conversations and he got so frustrated that he finally spoke up. We should follow that example. When we get frustrated, let's speak up. When you hear it out in society, when you hear it in the line at the grocery store, speak up. Elihu's wrath was kindled versus Job because he justified himself rather than God and against Job's friends because they condemned Job but they didn't have an answer. Later in chapter 38, God speaks out of the world when he says, Who is this darkening my counsel without knowledge? Following Elihu's speeches, God speaks up and he is rebuking the things that Elihu has said, particularly uh, there at the end of chapter 37, there's one thing he says that um, is wrong. It, he said something very Buddhist, very Muslim in Job 37, 23. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find Him out. Who is this that speaketh words without knowledge? What do you mean you can't find me out? You see, that's an error. We can't find God out, Elihu's right, unless he reveals himself to us. But where the Muslims and the Buddhists go wrong is he has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself to us through his word. He's revealed himself to us through his son. That's where Elihu went wrong. But it's interesting at the end of the book, 
Job prays for his friends. Job offers sacrifice for his friends, but that does not include Elihu. Kind of interesting. He's not rebuked by the Lord in chapter 42. Another interesting thing I mentioned, I know I'm repeating myself, but God didn't turn the captivity of Job until he prayed for his friends. That would preach. But Elihu talks about the sky spread out as a molten looking glass. Something that's molten is not transparent. It reflects back. So he speaks of the sky as a solid object like ice or crystal. Not something over our head, not what we see. Not what we see through a telescope, but something way out there. So we learn that there is a strong sky boundary spread out that is molten and reflects back. And that's where I got last week. In Job 38 through 41, we have God finally speaks. He speaks in His own time. He speaks out in His defense when He is ready to do so. It's not a reaction. He lets them banter back and forth for a while and then He speaks. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Referencing in the near context to what Elihu just said about not being able to know the Lord. Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You think you know so much. You men think you know so much. Where were you? And then God goes on to say some things. But in chapter 38, verse 30, well, it's interesting. In chapter 38, God is making reference to things in creation that show His glory, that show His design, that bear testimony to Him. And in verses 21 through 28, He refers to water, the things of the waters on the earth. Uh, Lightning and hail and all of these things. It's with regard to waters on the earth. But then in verses 29 through 33, he shifts to talk about, as it says in verse 33, the ordinances of heaven. So he's referring to his earthly creation and then he shifts to start talking about the ordinance of the heavens, of space, the things far beyond our sight. And so in the midst of this, in verse 30, he speaks of the hoary frost of heaven in verse 29. In verse 30, the waters are hid as with a stone and the face of the deep is frozen. That phrase, face of the deep, is what appears there in Genesis chapter 1, verses 2. Verse 2. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. Here we're told that that deep is frozen. Okay? These men had already been talking about those waters out there. So God lays down a few more details that they can't know. These are ordinances of the heavens, verse 33. The waters that are frozen are in the heavens. The ice and hoary frost of heaven, verse 29. Versus the snow and hail of earth, verse 22. The face of the deep now is frozen. It's frozen like a molten looking glass. This sky boundary that hides God's front throne is hidden 
and it's frozen, and it's a place I mentioned from chapter 26. It references, it's a boundary where day and night have an end. So it's the boundary. There is no time. This is the boundary of time, and it's frozen. Well, what does that mean, frozen? Does that mean 32 degrees Fahrenheit? No. That's when water freezes, but it's not where, up, when up, where other elements freeze. Water can freeze, and there's still molecular action. And guys, when molecules move and, and, and act, there is time. This is not 32 degrees Fahrenheit. This boundary is absolute zero. It's what we call zero degrees Kelvin. That's approximately 460 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. That is the point at which all molecular action or motion ceases. When there is no motion of molecules, when there is motion of molecules, there is time. There's day and night. When there is no motion of molecules, it ends. So we have a boundary where time ceases, the day stops, the night stops, that hides God's throne. And it's frozen. Absolute zero. What the scriptures seem to say. Turn to Psalm 148. It sheds light on these things. Well, you say, well, what does this have to do with Revelation 19? Well, those heavens behind that boundary, that boundary is going to open up. Psalm 148, 4 through 6. Praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters that be above the heavens. So this is waters above the heavens, above outer space. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commandeth, and they were created. He hath also established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. These are waters that are above the heavens, waters that were created, and confirms what's written there in Genesis 1, 6 through 8, and they were established so that they don't move out of place. They're there. They don't move. The waters down here move. Beaches erode. Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, doesn't look today like it did in the Civil War. They had to move the lighthouse because of the erosion. The Mississippi Delta looks a lot different today than it did 100 years ago. But these waters don't move out of place. There are lakes in the Great Basin that are dry that used to hold water. There are places like the Salton Sea, a disaster in Southern California that used to be dry, now it holds water. But not these. They don't move out of place. There are frozen waters, according to the scriptural testimony, held in suspension above the universe. They are what separates time from the abode of God. They are what separates the creation from the creator. They are that firmament created on the second day that abides. Now here's what's interesting. In the book of Revelation, go to chapter 4, verse 6. The book of Job is really rich. Really rich concerning the present creation. Revelation 4. Now remember, molten sky boundary, frozen, molten like a looking glass. You know how I talked about 
If it's molten, it's not transparent. It reflects back. One of the things that so-called scientists say, and that you kids will find in a lot of your textbooks, maybe not the ones uh, you use, but the universe is infinite. It's unending. How can we say such a thing? How can we say such a thing? How do we know there's not an end to it out there? How do we know what we're seeing is just on and on and on and on and on? How do we know that we're not seeing a sky reflected back upon us? You know, I talked about going into Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum. If Eric and I go to Israel, we'll, we'll be visiting that place. But you walk into this room, and it's a children's memorial where they read off the names of children that were killed in the Holocaust in the camp. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of names. I don't remember how many exact, but the voice just keeps reading off the list. It goes on and on and on and on. And you walk in there, and it looks like there's like hundreds and hundreds of candles everywhere shining. It's like stars in the sky, but it's actually a single candle. And the mirrors in there reflect them in such a way it looks like an innumerable number of candles. Well, how do we know what we're looking at? It just reflecting back on us. It's strange to me that the only fixed point in the northern sky is Polaris, the north star. There's actually two stars there. If you get a good telescope, you can see them, but it's fixed. Everything rotates around them. Interesting. Why is that? If everything is just unending and we're just randomly set in space. Sometimes people are so smart, they're really, really dumb. (laughs) Revelation 4, verse 6, And before the throne was a sea of glass. Like unto crystal. A sea of glass before God's throne. This sea of glass is the molten and frozen firmament that separates God's dwelling from the universe. If you cross reference this with what we've seen in Job, that's what the throne sits upon. It's the sea of glass. In God's presence, it's a sea of glass. In the created order, it's a barrier. It's a barrier. But then, look over to chapter 15, verse 2, what John sees. This is getting in toward the end of the tribulation. And I saw, verse 1, another sign in heaven, the great and marvelous seven angels having the seven last plagues. We talked about these being saints who get to participate in the judgment of God, help meet it out. John tries to bow down to one of them. He says, wait a minute, I'm your brother. I have the testimony of Jesus. Don't worship me, worship God. Having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark, those are the tribulation saints, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. These tribulation saints, these martyrs are standing on top of that sky boundary. And unlike the throne room in chapter 4, now this sea of glass, this frozen absolute zero boundary is is mingled with fire. Why is it mingled with fire? Because it's starting to melt. It's starting to melt so that it can open. And when it opens, someone with a whole lot of somebodies behind him, comes down. And everything we'd like to see made right under our president that won't be because he's a coward, he's a terrible negotiator, 
That was all hype when the campaign went on. All that stuff we'd like to see made right through righteousness in government today will be made right when the king comes. Because you know what? Messiah trumps Trump. And an absolute monarchy under the iron rod of a righteous king trumps a failed experiment in democracy, which is America. Exactly what our forefathers said would happen. One day it'll fail. Because the Constitution is meant for a moral and upright people. And when that people ceases to be moral and upright, the Constitution will not work. The government will fall. Sounds like our founding fathers knew more about the future of America than our president today. Starting to melt. But then you go on to chapter 21. And I've often wondered about this. I'm like, okay. The sea here on earth, the waters, they're such a beautiful thing. And God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. Surely there's going to be mountains and waters and all of this. But then you go to chapter 21, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Well, dang, that stinks. But remember, we've got to read these things in context. <coughs> What's the sea that's been referenced up to this point? It's not the ocean. It's the sea of glass. It's the sky boundary that cannot be passed where there is no time. That's the sea that won't be in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no dividing line between God and His creation in the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no time. There will be no death under the waters. There will be no frozen molten looking glass that cannot be passed. There will be direct access to God. There will be God dwelling among them. Emmanuel, righteousness. I'm not talking about the new heaven. I'm not talking about the millennium. Christ is going to reign over this present creation and show them who's king. And then God's going to melt it. And he's going to make a new one. And in that new one, there won't be a firmament like that. That's what that means. So praise God. Maybe I can gaze upon the ocean and the lakes and the streams. Pure water. No giardia. Not messed up and mucked up like men have done in Kathmandu. In the new creation, men won't be able to do what they've done today. Yes, men have destroyed God's creation. Now, you know, the liberal mindset and the green mafia and all that, wicked. Wicked. They're not motivated by conserving the environment. They're motivated by money and they're controlled like puppets. By the Antichrist. But we as Christians ought to care about the earth. We ought to be conservationists. We ought to see what God has made and want to be good stewards of it. But men are going to pay for what they've done to this planet. Republican and Democrat alike. And in the new one, they won't be able to mess with it. Because, you know, God gave earth to men to be good stewards. The heavens are His. That's why man only goes so far in outer space. Because the heavens, it says there, I believe in the Psalms, are his. You don't mess with it. Ask those astronauts that went up to the moon. They saw something up there. We don't, we'll never know what it is because the government loves to hide everything. Can't trust anything they say. If you go to Isaiah 14, we hear about the fall of Lucifer and what he tried to do. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? That word Lucifer 
in the English King James is absolutely 100% correct. It's not old morning star. Jesus is the morning star. Some of the modern Bibles make it the morning star who falls from heaven. And yet it says Jesus is the bright morning star in Revelation. Your King James Bible's right here. Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Why is America weak? Because Satan has weakened it. Why, are, why is our president weak? Because our churches have been weak. Because the people that voted him in are weak. We're weak. Do you think the Russian military and the Chinese military in their training are sitting around TVs watching seminars about transgenders and gay marriage? Do you think that's what the Russians are doing when they train? Come on. Thou which did weaken the nations, for thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Grave mistake. Satan tried to assert God's throne in the sides of the north. Look at Psalm 75. Psalm 75, the writer of Asaph lists the directions on the compass, but notice which direction is missing and what is substituted for it. Psalm 75, 6 and 7. For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. Promotion, men being elevated to office, men given power, comes from the east, the west, and the south, but God is the judge. He raises up according to his will. Notice what direction is missing there, the north. And notice what is substituted for north, God. God's dwelling, straight north. Way up above the sky and the clouds and outer space. Up, 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 up beyond the firmament. Atop that sea of glass. Over the empty space. Above the firmament. Out through the frozen waters. Beyond time and a fixed boundary. Straight north. That's where God is. Polaris, as I mentioned, the polar star is fixed in the north and it's the only fixed point in the northern sky. Interesting. But one day, this closed gate will open and heaven will come down to earth. Not as a little baby in a manger, but as a king whose vesture is dipped in blood, who in righteousness doth wage war. And the armies of heaven followed him. And what's the first thing that those here on this earth are going to see when that gate opens? Out of the north, the far north, behold a white horse. Verse 11, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. The diametric opposite of Donald John Trump. And in righteousness, Righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, diadems, not victor's crowns, crowns of authority. 
And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Behold a white horse. Guess what, guys? There's animals in heaven. Your little kitty cat, our little cat Ella sitting up there. You know, the animals that we know and love as pets, they die. Their, their soul is attached to their body and it goes down to the earth and it dies. Man has a soul and a spirit that goes back to God. That's the difference between the soul of man and that of an animal. In an animal, it's attached to the body and it dies with the body. In a man, it goes to God. But there are animals in heaven. Here's the proof. When the heavens open in the abode of God, behold a white horse. 2 Kings chapter 2 and chapter 6. Heavenly seeds, animals. When you read about the messianic kingdom in Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 11, guess what? The wolf lies down with the lamb. The lion and the sheep. The ox, they all eat straw together. Kids play with snakes and put their hands in the dens of spiders and no one is hurt. Praise God for that. Your little pet may not be up there, but there'll be animals in heaven. And you know, we live in a sick society. We live in a society that values animals more than humans. That's sick and twisted. But what's also sick and twisted is not to have any care for the life of a beast. The Bible says in Psalms that, or in, in, uh, uh, in, in I believe it's in um, Proverbs, that a righteous man cares about the life of his beast. But the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Now here in America, if my daughter, who's 15 years old, got pregnant, she could sneak behind mommy and daddy's back and she could go get an abortion without our knowledge with no form of ID, no record. But if me and my family, if I and my family, because our kitty cat got run over recently, we'd like to, we love cats, not because we think they're equal to us, but just because we like having a family friend. And we could go down to the Humane Society where there's all of these cats just on top of each other in the cages waiting for homes. And the information they want for us before they'll allow us to adopt this cat is ridiculous. They need to know the square footage of my house. They need to know how the, how the pipes run under the ground in the front yard. They need to know what type of food. They may pay a home visit to make sure. Can you believe that? That is a sick society. And I wish I could find the exact words, but Plato, the Greek philosopher, he said something about a society that values its animals on the same level or higher than it does its human beings, its people, that that society is in big trouble. It's, it's sick. And that's where we are today. But praise God, there's animals in heaven. Behold a white horse. Now, this is not the imposter of Revelation 6. Remember the first seal is open of that title deed. And I saw, behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. That's Antichrist, a bow with no arrows. He conquers, he's ushered in peacefully. He's got the victor's crown. Some people ludicrously teach that that's the Messiah in Revelation 6. That's Jesus. 
And that Messiah is the one referenced in the prophecy of Daniel 70 weeks. That's insanity. Those are the people that teach that the church is the new Israel. Now, some of them preach the gospel, praise God, but man, their eschatology is jacked up. And when you read Revelation 6 and you think that's talking about Jesus, you can't be trusted to preach a sermon on John 11, 35, Jesus wept. Is that 11, 35 or 11, 20? 11, 25 is I'm the resurrection and the life. You can't trust a man like that to preach a sermon on Jesus wept if he wants to tell you Revelation 6 is Jesus. No, that's the imposter. There is a false Christ coming that the Jews will foolishly believe is the Messiah and they'll be betrayed. And then, only then, will they realize their great mistake and the real Messiah will come and rescue them. But this is not that imposter. He does not bring in his train wars, famine, pestilences, economic disaster, strife. But he brings a train of victory and a kingdom. He doesn't have a bow with no arrows. He has a double-edged sword with which he'll smite the nations. Not a bow with which he deceives the nations, but a sword that smites the nations. A sharp one. He doesn't have the Stephanos, the victor's crown that's awarded to somebody that wins a race like this imposter does in chapter 6. But he has many diademas, many diadems, the crown of sovereign authority. His name. Or what is he called? He's called faithful and true. This Name tells us a whole lot. It's a mouthful. That means that he is definitely not a religious figure. If he's faithful and true, he sure as heck ain't a religious figure and you can rest assured he's not a politician because he is faithful and true. He's not a Democrat and he sure as heck ain't a Republican. God is not a Republican. He's not. And God cares just as much about the soul of a drunk on the street in Calcutta right now as he does about Donald Trump. He's not a Republican. He cares about the souls of men. And the value of the soul of that man drunk on the street is equal to the value of the soul of those most powerful politicians today. He is faithful and true. Not a religious figure. Not a politician. Turn to 2 Timothy. I'm going to dole out some scriptures. All right, men, get ready to read. Matthew, 2 Timothy 2.13. Gene, Jeremiah 10.10. And whenever you get there, just read it. Yes. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. What does faithful mean? It means he cannot deny himself. It means he cannot, not he will not, he cannot say, we will build a wall and then later call it a virtual wall. <laughs> We will not reopen the government until we have funds for a wall and then open the government. He doesn't do that. He doesn't deny himself. And the amazing thing is, 
if we believe not, if we doubt, if we struggle in our pilgrimage on this earth, yet he abideth faithful. Paul said, um, uh, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, King James. Not faith in the Son of God. The faith of the Son of God whereby we live. He's faithful. He's true. Jeremiah 10.10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide abide in the the nations. He's a true God. The God we're speaking of and the Son of God who comes down is the true God. The nations can't abide His wrath. He is faithful and true. He's not the God that the chaplain in the United States Senate prays to. That's not the God we're talking about. You know, recently a a, a chaplain during this government shutdown in the U.S. Senate, a Seventh-day Adventist, by the way, I believe that's a cult. It distracts, you know, they can preach that Jesus is the only way and salvation by grace through faith, but you can't have a conversation with a Seventh-day Adventist unless you're talking about worshiping on Saturday. So they betray themselves as to what they believe is the fruit of true salvation and what makes a person saved. It's false teaching. But our wonderful chaplain up there, Seventh-day Adventist, prays that God would bring an end to this chaos and grant these senators the strength to do what's right and to bring this government shut down to an end. Do you actually think that those prayers pierced that sky boundary? Are you kidding me? I don't even think they went through the clouds. They didn't even go through the rotunda of the Capitol building. The Bible says when a, that God does not hear the prayers of those that harbor iniquity in their heart. How many of those senators have sexually harassed individuals and have, have, have had lawsuits brought against them that have been covered up and our tax funding has been used to represent them and to defend them or to silence their critics? bunch of liars and they're calling out to God when they can't even see the sin of this nation you think God hears that in fact I would say they're better off not praying in the US Senate because the Bible says when you turn your ears away from God's law even your prayer is an abomination that's not who they're praying to the true God the God they pray to For show is one they fashioned in their own mind to suit their lust and pleasure. It's Antichrist, His Spirit. But the faithful and true God will smite the nations, makes the nations tremble. They cannot abide His wrath. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The true God has one way to get to Him to escape His wrath, and that is Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus Christ, born a Jew, suffered, was buried, rose again the third day. His disciples gave eyewitness testimony and wrote it down. It's the Jesus of the Old and the New Testament. That's the only way to God. So those who pray to a God, not acknowledging the Son of God, are lost. And their prayers are not heard. It's the spirit of Antichrist. Verse 11 also tells us he's called faithful and true. He sits upon a white horse and in righteousness 
He doth judge and make war. I used to have a bumper sticker on my RV as my wife and I traveled around the country preaching. It said, Jesus Christ is coming back soon and boy is he mad. It's probably a better word than mad to put there, but a little crude. But he wages war in righteousness, not because of greed, not because of contractors, not because of the opium crop in Afghanistan, not because of the oil in Iraq, not to cover up your own sins in the White House like Bill Clinton did when they bombed Serbia and committed war crimes, not for political gain, not sending your soldiers over to Vietnam and then not allowing them to fight because you are afraid of what the politics will look like and then sending men off to their death who aren't even allowed to use the weapons they've been given, not being fully aware that the Japanese were approaching Pearl Harbor, being fully aware of that plan and doing nothing so that it could be attacked and then you could justify going to war. That's not the war that the Messiah wages. In righteousness, he wages war. And that means he's not afraid to use the weapons he has at his disposal. He's not politically correct. He's not a respecter of persons. And he destroys his enemies. He does not compromise with them. He does not appease them. He destroys them. In righteousness, he judges and make war, makes war. And we shouldn't be afraid to preach these things. This isn't weakling Jesus hanging on the cross that the Catholics like to portray. This is the risen Christ. John sees him in chapter 1 as the high priest holding his church accountable. Here he's the coming king. And he rages, wages war and righteousness. Verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire. This is the same eyes that John saw in chapter 1 when Christ stood in the midst of the churches as the high priest. He doesn't change. Jesus has eyes that are as flames of fire to look at the heart of His church and to tell them exactly what their heart is and He has those same eyes of fire to pierce through the wicked. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Not Donald Trump the same yesterday, different now, and who knows what it's going to be 21 days from now or 20 days or however. The same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he had on his head were many crowns. These are the, di- these are the diadems. Sovereign authority. Not one crown. Not sovereign authority over one nation. But many crowns. Because when he comes, he will be sovereign over all nations. His capital will be at Jerusalem. He will be the king of Israel. And the kings of the earth will come up to Jerusalem to pay homage and tribute to him. Many crowns. And then he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. You see, this king is known by many names. We see three of them right here in these verses alone. Faithful and true. The word of God. King of kings and Lord of lords. He's known by many names. But he also has a special name written that no man knows but he himself. What name is that? I believe it's the name above every name that Paul mentions in Philippians 2.9. It's the name that only God knows how to pronounce it. 
It's the Tetragrammaton, the unpronounceable name in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures. We pronounce it Jehovah because the Masoretic scribes took the vowel points from the Hebrew word Adonai and inscribed them above the yod heh vav in the Hebrew language. And so we pronounce it Jehovah. Some have tried to pronounce it Yahweh. At best, that's a complete guess that kind of runs amok of the Hebrew language. But God really is the only one that knows how to pronounce that. And uh, that name is going to be written. And we're going to know because that's the name of the Messiah. Jesus Christ said it himself. Turn to John 8. Anytime a Muslim tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God... You can show him this in the Injil or the New Testament, the Gospels. John 8, 58 and 59. Jesus said unto them, these are the Jews, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. What did God tell Moses out of the burning bush? Who, who should I tell them you are? God said, just tell him I am sent you. That wasn't the name that no man knew. That's what God said. Well, just tell him I am sent you. That's where we get that yod heh vav It's where it starts to be used in the Old Testament. Jehovah. Now, we know that Jesus claimed to be God because of what happens in verse 59. Then they took up stones to cast at him. They tried to stone him for making himself equal with God. So of course he claimed to be God. Why do you think he used the very name that, that, that Moses was given by God? And they tried to stone him. Jesus Christ is the I am. And you know, those of us that are born again, those of us that are heirs, that are part of his church, we're not only heirs of God, we're joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ. And Jesus here, it's said, has a name written that no man knows but he himself. But being joint heirs with Christ, we have that blessing. You remember the letter to the church at Pergamos in chapter 2, verse 17? He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in, a, in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that received it. So Christ has these characteristics, these inheritances, these blessings. And because we are his body, we have them as well. He has a name written that no man knows but he himself. We will be given a new name written down that no man will know but, he, but us ourselves. What an amazing thing. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That is definitely not religion. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And if we are children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, we may also be glorified together. When He's glorified and the heavens open, we are glorified with Him. We follow Him on white steeds. He has a name written that no man knows but He Himself. We have a new name written that no man knows but we ourselves. Praise God. Then it goes on to tell us in chapter 19, verse 13, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. I like that word vesture. That's one of those strong, full King James English words, vesture. That's like eating 
the filet mignon. Not like eating some gristle. That's not like a gristle word that you find in these modern Bibles sometimes. His vesture is dipped in blood. Why? Well, he's come through 200 million horsemen that have been crushed under his feet, mashed so flat that their blood comes three feet up off the ground. You remember that, Revelation 14? The blood flew up, flows up to the horse's bridles for about 200 miles in every direction. That's why his vesture is dipped in blood. He's mashed the wicked so flat, the blood comes up three feet off the ground. That's the God. That's the Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who will fight for his people. And it's a roundabout journey to get there. You know, I think when you read Isaiah, Israel is to almost put to her total end. She flees into the wilderness. God gives her a place to sustain her. And I believe, based on some things written there in Isaiah, that there's almost, it almost seems like there's a second coming of Messiah. He intervenes and stops the dragon. They're in Basra, in Edom, in Moab. I preached about that a long time ago before some of you even came into the church. But look in Isaiah 63. I said I was going to start calling on people. I am. Be patient. I'm, I'm going to need you to read scriptures here, here in a minute. We may not get too far into it. Who is this, verse 1, Isaiah 63, that cometh from Edom, modern-day Jordan, the deserts, Petra, with dyed garments from Basra, this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So someone glorious comes from Edom in the last days. It's the Messiah. Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked and there was none to help and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Nobody to help Israel when Antichrist betrays them and drives them into the wilderness. Therefore my own arm brought salvation unto me in my fury it upheld me and I will tread down the people in mine anger and make them drunk in my fury and I will bring down their strength to the earth. That's the Messiah. Now this is possibly the roundabout journey he takes when he comes out of heaven through the deserts of Edom to Jerusalem. Or what we could see here I believe agrees with some other scriptures especially the horses bridles and all that. God's going to prepare a place in the wilderness of the deserts to protect the remnant of Israel during the tribulation, those that flee, and they'll have to be rescued or they'll utterly be destroyed. And someone glorious in his apparel comes. That's him waging war right there. Why is his vesture dipped in blood? Because he tramples his enemies. That's why. We don't have to be PC about it. That's why. Psalm 45 is an amazing prophetic scripture that pictures the king. The king ready to come. And who is standing at his side? His queen. His queen is the church. He's married to her now. The wedding supper is over. It's time for the public declaration. It's time to go to his home and establish his house from his father's. And then in Psalm 45, my heart 
is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Messiah is a prophet. But he's also a king. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hands shall teach thee terrible things. Mashing them flat. Terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. Whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God. Here Messiah is called God. Is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. The Messiah hates wickedness. Therefore God, thy God. So we have thy throne, O God. God the Son. Therefore God, God the Father. Thy God the Son, God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among the honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. That's the church at his right hand. Amen. Vesture dipped in blood. Psalm 68, verse 20. He that is our God is the God of salvation. And unto God the Lord belongeth the issues from death. But God shall wound the head of his enemies and the hairy scalp of such an one as goeth on still in his trespasses. The Lord said, I will bring again from Bashan. Bashan is uh, in modern day Jordan. I will bring my people again from the depths of the sea. That thy foot may be dipped in the blood of thine enemies. And the tongue of thy dogs in the same. The Messiah has dogs that will lick up the blood. Animals in heaven. They have seen thy goings, O God, even the goings of my God, my King in the sanctuary. Messiah will dip his blood, dip his feet in the blood of the wicked, and his dogs will lick it up, just like they licked up the blood of Ahab. Or was it Jezebel? It was Jezebel. Ahab perished. Jezebel licked up the blood. Again, we are joint heirs with Christ. He has a name written that no man knows but he himself we are given new names as the church that nobody will know but we ourselves he gets to dip his feet in the blood of the wicked guess what Psalm 58 verse 10 the righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance he shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked So that a man shall say, Verily there is a reward for the righteous. Verily he is a God that judges in the earth. Messiah gets to wash his feet in that blood and so do we. We're joint heirs with Christ. Now that's not PC. Maybe you think, oh gross. No, I don't. 
to wash my feet in the blood of the wicked in the train of Messiah when he puts down all this wickedness that we despise is a glorious thing. Praise God, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I pray God our president's not amongst the wicked. I pray God he'll get saved. And when he gets saved, he won't give his word and then change it. Because the righteous man swears to his own hurt and changes not. A righteous man would lose the presidency for what is good for the country. But why are we surprised he's lost? He needs to be born again. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad he said some things. I'm glad he's done some things, but he's not the Messiah. And we ought to call him out when he backs down and when you keep praying that God will save him. I actually feel sorry for him. I care about him. Some of these wicked devils in Congress, I'll just be honest in my flesh. I want to see them. I want to see their whoreheads, H-O-A-R, go down to the grave with violence and blood. That violence and blood's not mine to take. It's God's. Jesus said pray for our enemies. There's a lot of ways to pray for our enemies. David tells us a couple ways how to do it. His vesture dipped in blood. I, that word vesture is an old word that means his cloak or his tunic. It's his outer garment. It's his shell. His robe. Deuteronomy chapter 22 speaks of the vesture as something wherewith thou coverest thyself. So he's covered with a vesture. You see, Messiah had a vesture that was dipped in blood. It was his own blood. We're told in Psalm 22 that they would cast lots for Messiah's vesture. We see this messianic prophecy fulfilled in the life of Jesus of Nazareth in Matthew 27 and John 19. The soldiers didn't want to tear the cloak or the tunic, so they cast lots for it. And somebody won, won the gamble and, and got it. It was dipped in blood. It was covered with His blood shed for our sins. And they gambled for it. They gambled for the cloak or the tunic of the meek and mild Jesus of Nazareth who never lifted a finger to hurt anyone. All the people that tried to lay hands on Him in the garden went back and fell to the ground so He could make a point that I could stop this if I wanted to. But when Peter cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, he put it back on. He opened the eyes of the blind. He caused the lame to walk. He breathed life into the dead and they came to life again. He did nothing for himself. He came and was a servant. Never lifted a finger. And then they crucified him and they gambled for his vesture, dipped in his own blood. But, he has another vesture dipped in blood. But it won't be his own blood. It will be the blood of his enemies. Guess what? Also is a vesture. Hebrews chapter 1. Messiah had a vesture they gambled for, stained with his own blood, that purchased a people, that paid the cost and the price of sin. Messiah will have a vesture dipped in the blood of his enemies. And there's another vesture that we would be, do well to remember. Hebrews 1 verse 10. Oh, and thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. Just like 
God made sure Job and his friends understood. And the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old, just or as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fall. The heavens are a vesture. And one day God's going to fold them up, just like a cloak that we don't wear anymore, or it's turned into spring, we don't need it anymore. Or maybe it's too, it doesn't fit us anymore. He folds it up. And it'll be changed. These heavens, as glorious as they are on a starry night, are fallen. And they'll be folded up. So why do we put trust in the things of this earth? It's all going to be folded up like a vesture. And it'll be changed. A new heavens and a new earth without a sky boundary separating us from God. But even though the creation and the heavens and the earth will change, God will be the same as He always has been. In eternity past, when He spoke the heavens and the earth into existence in Genesis 1.1, when the Spirit moved over the face of the deep in verse 2, however many years later that was, whether it was soon after or long after, after the fall of Satan, whatever, when He spoke to Adam in the garden and gave him stewardship over the earth, when He called Abraham, when He spoke to Moses from the burning bush, when He rose up Israel, when He brought them into the land, when the kings came and went, when they were carried off to captivity into Babylon, when God's people came back and He spoke to the prophets and Nehemiah and Ezra, during the 400 years of silence between Malachi and speaking to Zacharias in the temple, when the angels spoke from the heavens that night outside of Bethlehem, when Messiah was 12 years old in the temple, when He grew up to be about 30 years of old age in the ministry of John the Baptist and His preaching here on the earth, after He returned back, after the disciples went out and spread that news and gave eyewitness testimony and wrote down the New Testament, after Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, after the gospel went forth and then the Gentiles perverted it and started the Catholic Church, through the Dark Ages, all down through history, the founding of this country to this present day, God is the same. And He will be the same in the coming days. He'll be the same when He returns to earth. He'll be the same when He sets up a kingdom. And He'll be the same after He's created a new heavens and a new earth and folded up the space, outer space, like a vesture. He's the same. And His name is called the Word of God. Now, we're going to have to dissect this. It's going to be probably another Sunday before we proceed any further in this book, in this chapter. Why? Because here we see John confirms what he wrote in his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, verse 14, John 1, was made flesh and dwelt among us. Here, His name is called the Word of God. There is a very close relationship between the living Word of God, the Messiah, and the written Word of God. This one that opens up heaven to come down is called the Word of God. And he has a sharp sword that goes out of his mouth. And we're told the written Word of God is a double-edged sword in Hebrews. The living Word of God is, in a sense, the written Word of God. They're so closely tied together that you cannot separate them. Therefore, there is no such thing as a Christian 
who loves Jesus but does not love the Bible. You do not love Jesus if you do not love His Word. The Jesus you love without the Word is an idol that can't save you when the true Messiah starts mashing His enemies flat. I preached on this one time down at Living Word and the Living Word of God, the Written Word of God. I think we need to survey the Scriptures because when we look at how the Written Word of God is described we see that the living Word of God is described in the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Exact same way. And in a day and time when people say, well, oh, we're Christians. I mean, Lady Gaga, whoever that is, I've never listened to a single thing she said or sung. I could care less. She's, that makeup is ugly. It's uglier than Tammy Faye Baker. <laughs> Stood up this last week on stage and talked about how Mike Pence and his wife aren't Christians. She's a real Christian. She loves everybody. Give me a break. Come on. If that's what a Christian is in the eyes of the world, then don't call me that. You don't have a clue who Christ is. You're an anti-Christian. You know, it's really sad that we live in a society where our vice president, who seems to fear God, has a wife that doesn't try to go out and show off herself. She's not in the public eye. She seems very humble just by... Her body language. But she goes and she teaches at a Christian school. Keeps teaching at a Christian school. And then this gets out that this Christian school has very biblical positions concerning homosexuality and abortion and other things. And then there's all this outcry. Why should she be given secret service protection when she teaches at a school? We need to expose these Christian schools. As if that's so terrible. As if, and then people talk about, well, we're Christians, but we don't think like this. That's Nazism. I mean, that's how screwed up this country is. You know, the president tweets about a lot of things. I would have thought he would have at least tweeted in support of his VP's wife, but I haven't seen one. I mean, come on. But you know, now this New York Times, I read about this New York Times journalist, he's trying to expose Christian schools and he wants people to write in there and tell about their experiences. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm going to hashtag it and I'm I'm going to one-up him. Let me tell you exactly what we teach at Engrafted Word Academy in Vail, North Carolina, my home school. Let me tell you exactly, sir, what we teach. Number one, we teach that people like you are dangerous enemies. But we teach that homosexuality and transgenderism are abominations in the eyes of God. We teach that the Bible is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice, that Palestine belongs to the Jews, and that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. We teach that walls and laws are moral, that they deter sin in a society. We teach that righteousness exalts a nation... And that sin is a reproach to any people. All of our teachers are armed. And the principal, who is me, has an AR-15 within reach at all times and plenty of ammunition. And I've got a big, thick King James Bible that hurts when you get smacked on the head with it. So if you want to dox us, sir, bring it. Bring it. That's the attitude we need to have to this wickedness. We will not bow. Maybe we need to stand there just like that Catholic kid and just stand there with that peaceable defiance. Mm -hmm. You can call it a smirk. 
peaceable defiance. I defy them. I will not bow to their God. Now, God can deliver me, but he may not. I won't bow. That's why we need to talk about the Word of God. And I'm going to end with this. In the New Testament, the Great Commission is given five times. We often think of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Make disciples. Go ye into all the world. That's the goal of the Great Commission. The goal is to go into all the world and build up the churches, to build up the church. That's the goal, baptizing and building up the church. In Mark 16, we have the scope of the Great Commission. Go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That means every soul, everyone, no people group above another. God may call us to certain groups, but our eyes are always open. God has called me to reach Israelis, but my eyes are open for the Gentiles. In John 20, Jesus says, As the Father hath sent me, I send you. That's the badge of authority. We go with the authority of Christ. That's the badge of the Great Commission. In Acts 1.8, we have the strategy. Beginning at Jerusalem, then going to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. Guys, that should be our strategy. Beginning right now in our own community. Then branching out. Then to the ends of the earth. You can't go to the ends of the earth. You can't claim to love the guy 10,000 miles from here unless you love the one living next door. So many missionaries are in love with missions and not with the souls of men. Those need to stay home. So the scope, the badge, the strategy, the goal. But then we have the message of the Great Commission. Something that's been forgotten. A message has to be shared. You don't do a message. You speak it. You write it. You share it. And that's in Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. Let me read it in context. Jesus, after his resurrection from the dead, he eats in front of his disciples. In his resurrection body, they gave him fish and a piece of honeycomb. He took it and he ate before them. He wasn't flesh and blood. He was flesh and bones in his resurrected body. He could eat. And he said unto them, verse 44, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. The words that I spake. That all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. We could, we could say it this way. All things must be fulfilled which were written in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. That's the three-part Hebrew Bible right there. The law, the Torah, first five books of Moses. The prophets, the Nevi'im, and the Psalms or the writings, the Ketubim. All three parts testify of Christ. Jesus was holding the Hebrew Tanakh. He, he was aware of it. He spoke and gave the three divisions. The, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The Hebrew Bible is the same exact Old Testament we have. Same books. They're arranged in three different categories. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Or the writings. Psalms include Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Daniel, and Ruth, and some others. The Chronicles. So ours is in more of a chronological order in the English Bible, but it's the exact same. And they all testify of Christ. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. It's not enough to read the Scriptures. We have to have our understanding open. That's why some, so many trip and fall over the Scriptures. He opened their understanding and said unto them, verse 46, Thus it is written. Three of the most powerful words 
translated into the English language. It is written. That's the basis of what we believe. We don't have to defend it. We don't have to argue it. It is written that men with men work that which is unseemly and vile. It is written. It is written that the women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. It is written. It is written that the stranger who comes into thy land shall abide by the law of thy land. It is written that he that ruleth in the kingdoms of men must do it righteously. It is written. That's the only authority we need. It is written, the word, the written word of God. And thus, because it is written in the written word, it behooved Christ, the living word, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sin should be preached, not done, preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. Because of the written word, it behooved the the living word to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And therefore, we should preach that amongst all nations. Can't preach without opening your mouth. Paul said, we believe, therefore we speak. This is the message of the Great Commission. That Christ had to suffer. He was buried. He rose again the third day. Therefore, God commands you, adults and children alike, to repent Mm -hmm. of your sins. To repent and to believe on Christ because He's coming to judge the world in righteousness. Kids, you need to, those of you that aren't saved, you need to repent. That means you go to God. You don't repeat words mommy and daddy tell you. You just go to God. You know you're a sinner. You ask God to save you. You you acknowledge to God, God, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. And then you believe upon whom God sent to take away your sins. And that's Jesus, the Messiah, we preach. And you say, God, I believe what you say, what is written about Jesus. I believe that he died, he buried, he rose again. And I want you to save me through Jesus. That's what it is to be saved. Just go to God. Quit putting it off. Quit making excuses. Quit forgetting about it. Because the day's coming when the trumpet's going to sound. You don't want to be left behind. I don't know what your age of accountability is. It was 20 years old in, in Israel coming in the desert. But God never specifies that. Get right with God. It's simple. You say, I want to be saved. Well, repent and ask Jesus to save you. And believe upon Him. It's so simple that we make it complicated. That's the message of the Great Commission. It's got to start here. We've got to preach it to our children. We've got to preach it here, then we take it to the ends of the earth. That is the message. And that message concerning the living Word of God is rooted in the written Word of God. You cannot separate the two. Jesus said, it is written. How do we separate the Bible? It is vitally important to understand the importance of those three words and their relationship to Christ as we carry out the Great Commission. 
We've tried to do this as a ministry, FBGM, for more than a decade. We've tried to make it about the written word. That's why we distribute the written word. That's why we preach from it. That's why we teach from it. Yet so many today, so many ministries and churches that need all this money to go overseas and do what? They so lightly esteem the Holy Bible and they somehow think that they can have a relationship with God, that they can have a relationship with Jesus, that they can faithfully carry out the Great Commission without the Bible. The living word without the written word. Then if that's the attitude of the churches and that's the attitude of missions, why are we surprised about the attitude that we have today about the United States Constitution? What do the liberals talk about? The Constitution's a living, breathable document. It's living. It's breathable. They talk about the living Constitution, but they want a living Constitution without a written Constitution. Well, they learn that from the church. We can blame ourselves for these judges. Many of these judges should be arrested. If the president cared about the country, he would have them arrested because of what they have done with the law. They have not carried out their duties. What they've sworn to do, they should be arrested, just like Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln arrested judges. There would be padlocks put on the doors of some of these newspaper Agencies that are printing things that are a danger to the safety and security of this country, they'd be padlocked, just like Abraham Lincoln did. That's what a righteous president who actually cared about the country and not about getting reelected would do. It's my opinion, but it's one man's opinion, but that's what he would do. Okay? But, but we have all these judges that rule, and then they try to say, well, if the president does declare a state of emergency, we'll just sue him in the courts and the judges won't let him do it. A righteous president who cares about the country and cares about you, those of you who voted for him, would defy judges like that and do it anyway and then have those judges arrested because they don't have the constitutional authority. Why do we think our president's going to use the constitutional authority afforded him in 21 days when he's not used it these past two years? Why are our tax dollars being spent to pay Robert Mueller when the constitutional authority could have shut that down. Friends, if they could... And Roger Stone's a weird dude, guys. He's a strange character. And I certainly don't believe... He thinks we ought to legalize all marijuana. Weird guy. But if the FBI can do what they did to him and his wife before dawn the other day, then every one of you can have that done to you. The FBI is your enemy. Down with the FBI. It's an enemy of the people. It's more dangerous than Vladimir Putin and the Russians. But that's what we live in. Everybody talks about the living constitution. And they use the living constitution, whatever the heck that is, to justify these atrocities. But why? They learned it from us, the church. Because we want to talk about the living word of God as if there is no written word. As if this has no authority. We gave them the strategy. We fed them the lie, and now they're using it to take away our freedoms. We have no one to blame but ourselves. You can't have one without the other. His name is called the Word of God. And in a mysterious way, the living Word and the written Word are inseparable. So next time I want to talk about that. 
There are qualities, according to the Bible, not stuff I'm making up, that they both share. The testimony is very specific about what the written word is and what the living word is, and it's the same. And you can only come to one conclusion. His name is called the Word of God. I've kind of been looking forward to this for a while. So we'll get into that, and then we'll proceed on down. He treads the winepress of his wrath, and we get to see what that looks like. Zechariah 14 is very detailed in what that looks like. In fact, modern-day movies, often they often mock the Bible, but they always have to get ideas and make allusions to the Bible. Raiders of the Lost Ark. They opened up the Ark of the Covenant. What happens to that German Nazi with the glasses on? They didn't just make that up when his face melted off. That came right out of Zechariah 14. What's going to happen to the wicked? So, praise God, our Messiah and our God will fight for us. And He will write these things that we so desperately want to see made right in our country. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the written word that bears testimony of the living word and that your name is called the word of God. Father, that in Christ we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, that we can enjoy these blessings and fruits of victory one day as we ride with Him, His bride. Thank You, Lord, that You keep Your promises the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that You're not like our politicians who lie. Lord, may we not put a false hope in them. Lord, if need be, may we say enough. We're no longer participating in this charade. Lord, I pray that You will... Right these wrongs, Lord, for the little unborn children whose blood cries to you from the ground just like Abel. Lord, for the, the wickedness in the society, for the chaos that results when there is no law. Lord, I pray against the borders that are breached. I pray against the crime that puts us all in danger. I pray against the mafias, the homosexual and the, the environmental mafias who want to take our children from us, who want, who want to destroy people in the name of environmental protection. I pray against those who would call evil good and good evil. Those that would act as if animals are of more importance than a man. Jesus, you said a man is more valuable than many sparrows. Lord, we pray against this wickedness. And like the prophet Isaiah, oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens and come down. And we praise God that unlike the prophet in his day and time, we have the New Testament that confirms that this rending will occur. The heavens will be rent. You will come down. You will raise up a kingdom. You'll fold up this present creation like a vesture. You'll make a new heaven and new earth with no more sea dividing us between, dividing between us and thee. No more death under the waters. No more molten looking glass. Lord, you are far, 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 far above all of that. Your throne is so far north we could never get there. But yet, you've given the spirit of our sons into our hearts by faith whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We praise you that we serve such a God. Lord, we ask that you would save our president. Lord, that you would protect our vice president and his wife. Lord, against the wicked, that they would stand strong. Lord, that you would save Mr. Trump and his family. And that through the Spirit of God, they could stand and not falter. Without the Spirit of God, how difficult is it to make a promise and keep it? But in Christ, we have no option but to make a promise and keep it. So we pray that you save him. Even if the country falls, that you save him. Lord, bless the food that's been prepared and bless our fellowship to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.